More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Buck Sexton Show. This week, we have an expert in military and national security analysis. Bill Roggio is with us. He's Part of the Long War Journal. He's at the Foundation of Defense and Democracies. He knows this stuff backwards and forwards. Uh, Bill, thanks for being with us. Buck, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, so we're Ukraine. We're deep diving into Ukraine. Give everybody an assessment uh, of where we are. It's February 2023. We are one year into this war. What is the state of play right now? Yeah, I think this war has not gone the way that just about everyone thought. At one point, you know, everyone was concerned that the Russians were going to you know, overrun the capital and oust the Ukrainian government. And then after this fall, there was a lot of uh, jubilation as the Ukrainians ejected the Russians from northern Ukraine, as well as in the Kherson region in the south. But things seem to have stabilized now. Russia has called up a mobilization of forces. Um, there's estimated some, I saw around 320,000 Russian troops inside Ukraine now, and another about 100 to 150,000 in reserve. So this is a sig- this is more than twice of the forces that the Russians began this war with. So we're sort of at a stalemate at this point, which was expected because of the winter months. But the Russians do appear to be planning for an offensive, but it's hard to tell where they're actually doing this. Right now, we're seeing most of the fighting, most of the reporting of the fighting is in the the Donbass region in the east. The Russians have been massing forces there and they are they are taking some ground. It's slow. It's a slog, but if they can take the city of Bakhmut, it's a key city along the crossroads of two major highways. It's a, it's a key transportation, um a logistical hub for the Russians. But whether they can they could capitalize on those gains, it's really difficult to tell. I you know, I see things far across the spectrum in the in the analysis of this and given the way this war has gone uh you know it's anyone's guess what the next phase is but i do think we're going to see increased fighting in the south like the i'm sorry in the uh, in the east in the donbass region and this is going to uh foil the ukrainians plans to try to eject 
Russia from the Crimea. Um, look, the Ukrainians want the Russians completely out of Ukraine. And I don't think that's possible given the commitment that the Russians are now making to this. And um, one other thing I'd like to mention here too is the sanctions. The, um, these were heralded at the beginning as going to break the back of the Russians within weeks, if not months. And I think what, we, what we've seen here in this war is that the, the Russians have really gotten around this. Um, their GDP, I believe, is down somewhere only around 3% this year. It hasn't broken the back of their military and industrial complex. It hasn't um, caused the Russians to end this war and withdraw from Ukraine. So we, ha we have to really think hard about you know, the, the efficacy of, of uh, economic sanctions and the soft power, so to speak. Where do the Russians, from a pure you know, order of battlefield assessment of these opposing forces uh, standpoint, right, or order of battle, um, where do the Russians have the advantage and where are the Ukrainians able to exploit Russian weaknesses? Yeah, the, the Russians have the qualitative uh, advantage, meaning they have the numbers. Uh, Russia is three to four times larger than Ukraine, so they have far more uh, recruits to uh, gather. More, you know, they can they can conscript and and recruit from far more uh, of the population than Ukraine can. They have uh, the legacy Soviet military hardware and munitions that um, that they can draw on, and they manufacture. So this is these are the big advantages of the Russians. Um, the Ukrainians have. Their advantage is they're fighting for their homeland, right? They're fighting on their own soil. So they're far more motivated, but also the support they are receiving from the West. And that has made a difference. And they are getting more advanced weaponry. But, the, you know, I think my concern with the, with the Ukrainians' advantage at some point is when does certain Western countries tire of spending billions or tens of billions or even hundreds of billions of dollars in supporting what is looking to be another long and what a lot of people when they describe the war on terror becoming an endless war um you know this is a narrative that was put out on both the far right and the far left and um and in between during the war on terror and it led to the withdrawal from Af afghanistan it exhausted the american public you know i don't think we're there i don't think we're close to that point but if russia can keep it a stalemate or make slow advances this is where, and the West tires if it, and it's not able to send the munitions because we're not manufacturing nearly enough to, to replace what we've given the Ukrainians as well as to arm them on a regular basis because they're expending particularly munitions like artillery and air defense uh, missiles at a, at a staggering rate in order to hold off the Russians. So that also, I think time, that's another advantage that the Russians have. Ukrainians, um, they're they're more willing, they're more adaptable. They're, um, I think they're again, they're more motivated, and they have been integrating Western weapon systems. But there are problems with that since they're getting a hodgepodge of weapon systems. They're not, they're um, they're not using a single system. So they'll get American tanks and German tanks and and Ukrainian, or I'm sorry, uh, British tanks, and those all have their own maintenance and logistical issues to deal with. Um, whereas the Russians have the old Soviet hardware and the new hardware they're manufacturing, it's all homemade. The Ukrainians are expending that old Soviet hardware and they're not able to replace that. So that th those are the sort of the plus and minuses for each side. What do you view as the realistic risk of this escalating into a nuclear a nuclear fight? I was far more concerned about this 
earlier in the war, uh, given the rhetoric that was being put out on particularly on both sides. Um, I, I'm less concerned about this now, but I am still concerned. Uh, with a regime like like the Putin regime, can, can, I, can I actually rephrase the question really quickly, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. What sure. would what in your mind would uh, you say you are confident Russia would respond to nukes? You know, what would make Russia go nuclear? That's a, an excellent question. I think direct Western involvement. If NATO directly got involved, that would be one situation where the Russians may consider using nuclear weapons and another is if they're actually um if ukrainians hit them hard enough that the russian military is in danger of um losing significant ground or losing significant forces that would be might be another case where the russians might use a nuclear weapon so those would um very likely in those cases be tactical battlefield nukes that would be used but once you um you know once that happens all bets are off you know this isn't you know Nobody wants to play the game of chicken with nuclear weapons. Is Putin in a weaker or stronger position one year into this war than when when it was started? I would say he is in a stronger position today. And um, it may not be. Look, the Russians have had problems on the battlefield, but they still have made significant gains in Ukraine. He's able to he still has the support of the uh the the russian elite of the russian military and intelligence establishment you're not seeing major protests inside of, of russia you're not seeing an economic collapse he's able to raise forces to um he's calling up the reserves that's not a problem um you know he he's standing his ground just as well as Zelensky is standing his ground i would say you know it's it's difficult to it's hard to believe, but both of them are actually stronger than the day that this war started. It's hard to say that with Zelensky since, you know, there is still a, a significant portion of Russian ground or Ukrainian ground under Russian control, but he's in a very strong position. He's getting, he's getting his weapons from the West. He's getting a lot of his demands met. And the same thing with Putin. He's getting what he needs to, to wage his war inside of Ukraine with very little res domestic resistance. And internationally, I don't think Putin is as isolated as Western leaders like to say. I mean, yes, with the West, but that was to be expected. But when it comes to the countries that matter to, to Russia, like India, like China, uh, and, other, and other countries, and really the global South, you know, Putin is not a pariah to these countries. I just want to tell everybody at home for a moment here about MyPillow and how they can get the best night's rest of their life. Thanks to Mike Lindell's MyPillow. The pillows, the mattress covers, the sheets, all amazing. The Giza Dream sheets are particularly phenomenal. I sleep on them every night. And right now, Giza Dream sheets come in as low as $29.98. When you use my name, promo code BUCK. It's so easy. These are going to be the sheets you want to sleep on. You're going to want multiple pairs of them. These are the only sheets you're ever going to need for your bed, for your for your home. MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty, a 60-day money-back guarantee. So you can sleep on them for eight weeks, getting so comfortable, getting a great night's sleep. And you know that the whole time, if you don't like them, you can send them back, but you're not going to. Go to MyPillow.com, click on Radio Listener Specials, and use promo code BUCK. Again, Giza Dream Sheets, $29.98. When you go to MyPillow.com, promo code BUCK. Or if you want to call in, just 800-792-3269. That's 800-792-3269. How do you think the Biden administration has handled this so far? Um, you know, in, in the most nonpartisan 
viewpoint possible? What have they done right? What have they done wrong? I, th- I would say at the outset of the war, the, the administration was very it didn't it was didn't have a coherent message. Um, and I think its messaging on Ukraine and its commitment to Ukraine has improved drastically s- since the beginning of this war. Uh, for instance, uh, the Biden administration was able to convince Germany to send those Leopard 2 tanks and is going to send M1 Abrams tanks to the Ukrainians. These are needed if the Ukrainians are going to mount an offensive, potentially, or at the very least to, to conduct a defensive. But yeah, so in the beginning, it was, you know, he was all over the place, President Biden and his messaging. It was, it was very incoherent. Um, I think he has organized the, the coalition of Western nations that are supporting Ukraine um, fairly well. This isn't perfect. Um, you know, and again, here's another imperfect aspect of this. It seemed like President Biden had to be drag kicking and screaming for the him to p- supply American tanks. The Germans weren't going to provide tanks to the Ukrainians because they didn't want the Russians to potentially use that against them to as a, use it as a you know a flashpoint to escalate against the Germans. So the Germans' position was, well, if the Americans send tanks too, then you know it's it's not just the Germans doing it; it's it's all of NATO doing it. So it gets them under the protection of the NATO umbrella. I don't know um, how, you know, we could debate the um, the wisdom of that argument, but, you know, it took President Biden a while to make that decision. But ultimately, he has made decisions that have benefited Ukraine. Um, another, another aspect of this, though, that I don't like that this administration is doing, um, I do believe there should be um, accountability for the weapons and, and aid that is flowing into Ukraine. If you even question the idea that you know maybe this isn't being done efficiently or perhaps there might be some corruption inside ukraine that makes you pro-putin and pro-russian but you know we've um the american public has a right you know when hundreds of billions of dollars over 100 billion dollars now and i guarantee you it's going to be hundreds of billion dollars and several years it'll be approaching a trillion dollars the american public has a right to know where this money is going and how efficiently is it's being and this administration is not willing to do that. It's it's messaging on that issue is just if you're if you want that, then you know you must support Russia. You must. Support yeah, I mean, to that end, you often will hear on the right um, very pointed criticism of Ukraine as before the invasion, a deeply corrupt place. H- how fair is that assessment, and and how important is that to understanding the politics of that country? It's a very fair assessment. I mean, if you read the newspaper prior to the Russian, read the New York Times, read the Washington Post or, you know, any other major newspaper, they're filled with stories of corruption, Ukrainian corruption, its political system. But not just that, but like its integration of right wing um, militias, basically, such as the Azov Brigade, which has been made an official unit in the military in the Russian, I'm sorry, in the Ukrainian military. Um, this is a Nazi, neo-Nazi organization. I mean, it, and, but this has all been whitewashed since the, um, since the Russian invasion, because any criticism whatsoever of the Ukrainians, look, we can, we can, we can be concerned about issues of corruption and accountability and be concerned about, um, human rights and things like, uh, right-wing militias inside of Ukraine and still support Ukraine in its fight against Russia, um, this this idea that you have to be 100% on board or you're on the other side, um, this is just a strange polarization of politics that we witnessed over the last 10 years that is deeply disturbing to me. 
what would have to happen for Russia to stop? You know, what that people often ask, where is the diplomacy in all of this? We're not even really hearing about any negotiations certainly happening at, at the high level here to bring this conflict to a close. Maybe something's happening behind closed doors we're not aware of. But what is an acceptable end to the fighting from the Russian perspective? I mean, from the Ukrainian perspective, I assume it's get the hell out of our country. Right. And that's the problem here. You won't have uh, meaningful negotiations when both sides and, and on the Ukrainian side, rightfully so, maximalist goals, right? The Ukrainian goal is get every Russian out of every inch of our country. Completely understandable. The Russians' position, they just annexed four um, territories within Ukraine, and they're going to fight, continue to fight for them. When that's the position of each side, there is no room for diplomacy. There's no room for talks. There, I, I think the only way this actually ends is on the battlefield. One side has to gain an advantage over the other. And I don't see that happening. And that's why I think we're going to be in a situation where this is going to be a war for a lengthy war. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next. I hear people saying this could go on three years, five years. Who knows? Do both sides, assuming the NATO and U.S. support continues to the Ukrainians at, at a similar level to what it has been, do you think that both sides could drag on a war for five years, perhaps more? Well, if you think about it, um, I, the answer to that is I think the Russians can. I'm not very, um, very confident that the, the Western countries are, are willing to do this. Um, it's a major drag on their con- on the economies. But if you look back, really, this war has been going on since 2014 when Russian forces um, uh, inec- or, uh, invaded portions of the Donbass re- and, um, uh, and also in the Crimea. Right. So this war has been, it's been but that was a slow, low intensity war, a war at this level. Um, look. The U.S. and NATO and Western countries can afford to support the Ukrainians um, indefinitely if they wish to do so. The question is, is will they be willing to do so? And the Russians also, they still have some aces up their sleeves in, with the energy weapon, which surprisingly to me, they really haven't played to the full extent. They're still selling energy to Western countries. And that's a that's a, a real... That's one of the parts of this that I think has been so eye-opening for a lot of people because early on we were told we're going to crush them economically. We're not even have to worry that much about how the Ukrainians do in the battlefield because the Russians, once you know they once they feel their sanctions and the oligarchs' mistresses can't buy their Chanel purses anymore, and you know all this stuff, it's all going to come to a halt. Not even close to being true, right? We go back a year to what they what the policy community, what Biden, the White House was saying, and where we are now. There's it's almost like there were no sanctions as you have no sense of this being. Have we been more hurt economically than the Russians? I think the West has been hurt more economically. Um, you know, prices, energy prices in Europe are phenomenally high and here in the U.S. significantly high. Um, I, and, you know, look, this this has a, an effect um, downstream in the economy and I don't think the Russians have experienced that pain. They haven't experienced the economic pain that we have here in the West. And I think the Russians can actually make that pain worse. That's the real interesting thing about this war, Buck, is the Russians, you know, if they really wanted to hurt the West, they could shut off their, their, the flow of their petroleum flows, right? The gas and natural, uh, right. natural gas, oil and all of that. But they haven't. They continue to sell to the West 
while they're fighting Ukraine, while the West is arming the Ukrainians. It's it's a real, it's bizarre. And the West is, uh, you know, you have Western countries, Western leaders saying we will do everything we can to stop Putin, except stop buying their natural resources. Um, I, I don't know how long that can last. I guess that could last indefinitely. But, uh, you know, you get into some 1984 Orwellian endless war type situation with this. Um, I, again, I don't know how long that there, what the, what the tolerance of the West is. To, but look, we, I go back to Afghanistan. I go back to Iraq. We couldn't tolerate low intensity wars. Granted, they were being fought by our troops, um, that were, you know, significantly less than what we're, what we're witnessing in, in, in Ukraine. So is it two years? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? If the Russians are willing to stick it out, um, I believe time is on their side, ultimately. Let's take a moment out there to tell everybody they should be on the lookout if they're a T-Mobile subscriber. T-Mobile is investigating a data breach that exposed sensitive personnel information of 37 million customers. Cyber hackers get this stuff. They put it online on the dark web, and then cyber thieves use it to steal your identity. But what can you do about this? I do actually have an answer for you. LifeLock. LifeLock's online identity theft protection includes monitoring the web 24-7 for irregular activities and new account openings. They see unusual activity in your name and you're a LifeLock customer, like I have been for years, then you'll get an alert. That text comes via phone or email, whatever it takes to get you that information in a timely manner. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives, and if you do become a victim of identity theft, a dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but it's easy to help protect yourself with LifeLock. Join now. Save up to 25% off your first year with promo code BUCK at LifeLock.com. That's LifeLock.com. Go to that website. Make sure you use promo code BUCK when you sign up, or you can just call this number 1-800-LIFELOCK. But make sure you use promo code BUCK. You'll get 25% off 1-800-LIFELOCK. Bill, you know, there's some analysis going around that I will hear from different uh, experts because one of the questions that I think every American who's paying attention to this has is, why do we care to this degree? Meaning sending uh, all this equipment, $100 billion of taxpayer dollars going to this. And seems it seems that what I hear is a combination of uh, almost like domino theory when we were worried about communism and you know the fall of Vietnam. And oh, if they go, then others will go. Um, but in this case, it's if they take all of Ukraine, then Poland is next or some other countries next. But Article 5 would seem to me to indicate, given the, first of all, the problems Russia has even had just with Ukraine, that there won't be any NATO country that's next in this regard. What do you make of all that? What Do you think it's, it's a serious consideration that if we don't stop them in Ukraine, we're going to have to stop them in Berlin? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's a, a reasonable um way to think of this war. I said earlier, I think within the first month, uh, one of the things that this war showed us um, was that the Russians are not a direct conventional military threat to NATO, perhaps to the Baltic countries. But again, we have Article 5, the Russians, I think the Russians can see now that the US and NATO will unite and defend its territory. But Ukraine is not a NATO member. And the Russians, I mean, look, they couldn't push past Kiev, and they're nowhere near it today. Um, they're they're you know they're on the southern and eastern and a little bit in the northeastern portions. They control probably around fifteen percent of Ukraine. But you know that that was when they threw the probably their best punch. And so if they're 
you know, I don't think we need to be sitting around here worrying about the Russians in Berlin and Warsaw. Um, I do find it ironic that many of the same people who, you know, discounted the domino theory, theory with uh, Vietnam, um, you know, now make their own uh, domino theory. Right. It's their own version, to. right? This, the slope gets yeah, very exactly. slippery when they want it to be. Exactly. You know, this is, you know, it's a, you know, it's it's selective uh, analysis. And, uh, you know, I think you have to you have to look at this. You have to look at what's happened here and recognize that the Russians are not a threat. You know, that's not the argument. The argument is, is Ukraine is an independent country. It's an ally. It's a friend. And we're going to help them. We're going to help them ward off uh, the aggression of a of Putin. And so, I think so that's help, a reasonable help argument and an argument I could support. Right. So help me help me with this. If we're giving everybody uh, listening to this a, a full spectrum uh, argument about about all this, which is which is obviously the the goal um, when it comes to Russia, let's say, controlling half of Ukraine, if, if that if let's say they got to, to Kiev or Kiev and you know, roughly speaking, they were in control of a solid half of the country. And then the Russians said, all right, you know what? Fine. We'll stop here. We're, we're, we'll take this part. We've got the Russian-speaking uh, areas of eastern Ukraine. We've got the industrial heartland. We'll stop here. What's the worst? What's the worst case scenario if that were to happen from our interests, from from America's interest? You know, from America's interest, it's that the Russians would have gotten away with aggression. Um, you know, the United States since the end of the Cold War. Look, it's the reason why we in. Um, went to war against Saddam Hussein, right? He invaded Kuwait, so the United States intervened. Um, we want to set a precedent that one country doesn't invade another and take it over. Um, so that that would be a downside. I mean, I don't, but again, I don't see that as a direct threat to NATO. It's a threat to the Ukrainians. Um, it's probably a threat to other countries that are not within NATO. You know, if you're countries like Georgia and, you know, you know, in, in, um, for or any other former Soviet republic, Kazakhstan, for instance, yeah, those countries would be very concerned that the Russians are trying to put together the Soviet Union. But again, the Russians have, have shown us that they aren't militarily capable of invading NATO. I mean, I would say the Russian military is probably won't have that capability for ten to fifteen years, given on what it's expended, what it have to put back together, and how it have to tra- you know train an entirely new military. And, and learn to fight a different way. And, I, you know, I, I just, I don't view, that would not be the worst case scenario for the United States in the sense that, like, it would leave a, a direct threat to NATO. You would have a rump Ukrainian government if, if, um, there. And I would expect the West to arm that significantly um, in order to be able to defend itself. So, Are there any energy considerations or, or the change in pipeline or uh, production uh, of of natural gas of of oil that a russian seizure of of most or all of ukraine would would bring to bear you know would, would it make things markedly worse in terms of the pressure the kremlin could bring to bear on germany poland etc no i don't think there would it would be significant there's uh, numerous pipelines that are running through ukraine and these some of these are still operational while this war is ongoing so the russians have shown that they're again they've shown that they're willing to sell us oil to fund their war machine and we're willing to pay for it. So um, I don't, you know, the only consideration there is if the Ukrainians cut those supply lines in order to punish the Russians. Right. But this, I don't, I couldn't foresee this happening because 
the West still wants to buy that. Uh, the, yeah, that whatever happened to that, that pipeline that just mysteriously exploded under the water, Bill? It's a mystery. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know why the Russians would blow up their own. Imp- I'm, look, I, I know there's tons of conspiracy theories out there on this. I don't know what the answer is, but I can't see the Russians who paid a lot of money to, to lay these pipelines decide to blow it up when they're more than willing to sell us um, oil and natural gas. Right. That flow through I mean, these people who are saying pipes. it's a false flag to excuse Russian aggression. The Russians had already invaded. I, I don't think they need any. I, I don't think Putin yeah. needs to play that game. I think he just goes after who he wants to go after. So that that never really made very much, very much sense to me at all as an explanation. I haven't I've seen any evidence that was actually detonated. It's possible that this was an accident, that there was some type of, you know, a natural event that caused this. I don't know. But um, it, I do know that it makes no sense for the Russians to have blown up their own pipeline, that they're what making would, a lot of money off of. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, Putin, just like everybody, Russians, the Russian yeah. government, they like money. Uh, they like their money and they need that money to fund their yeah, war. Of course. Well, that's so this is really transitioning into the next thing I want to ask you, which is how could we make it painful enough for Russia that they do decide to stop? Maybe they are at least willing to make some kind of concessions. Let's say the Russia, what would it take to get the Russians to sit down and say, you know what, we'll go back to the de facto, call it, uh, you know, pre, well, pre 2022, but let's say uh, back to basically where things were starting around 2014 with the invasion of Donbass by the paramilitaries and all that, you know, we'll kind of go back to that line. What would it take for them well, to do for, that? Is it just ca- is it just casualties? Because it feels like economically speaking, we don't have the pressure to bring to bear on them. Yeah. And the Russians have shown, right, we, if countries won't buy those oil, that oil or that gas, they'll sell it to other markets because, you know, look, it, it, oil, gas, it's like cash. It's money. It's fungible. Right. There's always someone that's out there willing to buy. So. I think it, what it would take would be a, a significant military defeat. Um, you would ha- the Russians not would have to lose just significant amount of forces, but materiel. Like they'd have to lose a large part of their tanks, and and their air force would have to be severely armed. And I don't think you could do a lot of this without striking inside of Russia. And this is one of those ones where remember you asked the question about what what might cause an exchange of nuclear weapons. Right. That's another one. If if the if the Ukrainians did, um, you know, using weapons that we supplied, decided to strike deep into Russia in order to, to hurt the Russians, um, you know, supply depots, air air bases, um, places where troops are mustering, they, they would have to hit them really hard, Buck, in order to, you know, significant casualties and significant loss of material. That would force the Russians to like it would it would create a situation where if they didn't withdraw, they can, they, it would possibly collapse. Yeah. But keep in mind, the Ukrainian position is that's not good enough. Losing Crimea isn't good enough. Losing those eastern areas of the Donbass isn't good enough. They want the Russians out fully now. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's going to be a hard sell. I don't think, you know, the, it, it would take, like you said, it would take a significant military defeat in order for the Russians to go there. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic, and then Carmen and Juni. 
I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. We're already sending over Abrams tanks. Uh, the, what, the Germans are sending over Leopard tanks? Is that right? So they're sending over correct, yeah. and some of their stuff, too. Uh, this is pretty frontline weaponry for Western powers. Uh I assume we're providing all kinds of training, intelligence, and, lo- and logistic support that isn't even really talked about, but that's just the nature of how these things work, how these conflicts play out. Um, so that's all underway. Is there anything that we could give them that we wouldn't have to operate ourselves that would be a battlefield game changer, or is it just no one thing? We get into the Charlie Wilson's war uh, Mike Vickers assessment, right? That it's not one weapon system for the Mujahideen against the Soviets. It's you just got to give them the, 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 the smorgasbord. You got to give them everything, right? Is, is there anything that we could give them that would really make much of a difference or is it just keep giving them everything we've been giving them? I think we have to continue giving them what they have, what we've been giving them. And it would be, so for instance, the tanks that we're supplying, US is basically supplying a company of tanks. I believe it's around 12 or 13 tanks. That's, fine for a small area, but it's not going to make a strategic difference in the war. It's a minor tactical difference. And I believe all the tanks put together that the U.S., the Brits are also supplying Challenger tanks. It'll fill out about a regiment, an armored regiment. 
that's good. Um, but that is, I don't think that's enough to drive the Russians. I mean, the down. Russians Maybe have, the Russians have thousands of tanks, right? I mean, we're, we're looking exactly. at. So we would have to give them things in quantities that we can't possibly give them. And that's the real problem. Keep in mind. Um, and a lot of these are just plain old artillery shells. The U S has pillaged stockpiles. There was an article in the New York times about this, I believe a week or so ago where they pillaged hundreds of thousands of rounds from a stockpile in Israel and another in South Korea. These are, these are stockpiled in case of conflicts in these regions. Obviously, the one in South Korea, in case there is a war either with North Korea or a war with China. So we're trying to rob Peter. Uh, we, we are robbing Peter to pay Paul here, and we're not giving Peter anything back. So we, our, our munitions, we haven't put our factories, our munitions factories, on, on a wartime footing. So again, I mentioned this earlier. We're providing the Ukrainians with 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 shells from our stockpiles, with missiles, with tanks and such from our stockpiles. Um, what we're manufacturing now isn't going to replace what we've given them. And at some point, it's gonna, we're, we're going to run out if we don't increase uh, the way we're producing these weapons. So we'd have to give them a lot more than what we're giving them, as well as have the capability to restock. And this is why countries like Germany and other countries are concerned about providing the Ukraine the Ukrainians with their tanks, and particularly the Germany, the Germans, right? The, about a year ago, right, I believe it was right before or after the war started, they were, there was an article out where the, I believe the German defense minister basically, or it was a German army chief of staff, basically said the German army was broken, that, you know, it can't put units in the field, its maintenance was poor on, a, on its tanks and armored fighting vehicles. So the last thing the country like Germany wants to do is give up its... Um, things that are working to Ukraine when they can't even manage what they have now. And the U.S. isn't in that situation, but we might be there in six months. It might take a year. So what we, you know, a lot of this is, you know, again, we'd have to increase the amount that we're giving them. We have to increase the, um, the quantity that we're making to fill our own stocks and give even more to the Ukrainians. So, you know, and also I do think that, you know, if we did this, and I don't, I'm not advocating I'm just saying this is something being discussed. Modernizing the Ukrainian Air Force and their air defense system. Uh, no, no, I, was, <laughs> I swear we didn't we didn't we didn't plan this. I was going to say, are we going to talk about <laughs> no, a no didn't. fly zone again this year? Is that what's is that what's going to happen? Or at least the provision right. of advanced fighters and, and other aircraft, fixed wing, rotary, all that stuff. But that's not a quick solution, Buck, right? Those it takes months, if not years, to train pilots and maintenance crews and, and whatnot in order to um, to to make these get uh, to get them in the air, right? Or or in, um, to integrate mi complicated missile defense systems. Right now, we're providing a hodgepodge. I think the Ukrainians need to have a standardization of their weapon systems as well, because again, they're getting Ukrainian or I'm sorry, uh, United K tanks from the United Kingdom or uh, tanks from Germany, tanks from the United States. These aren't compatible. They might fire the same shells, but they have very different needs um very different maintenance needs and logistical needs to keep these things up and running and at some point that wears on the ukrainians and, and that's a big cost for us in order to try to keep those things running i mean what's the real value of 13 american m1 abrams tanks in a particular sector of a of a particular theater in this war and i'm sure it'd be significant but in the overall picture, 13 American so, tanks aren't going to make a big difference. So I can say this from from having been uh, in Afghanistan in 2010 and seeing the country level assessments at the highest level that were being given to the four star in theater that 
the president was reading. I mean, I was seeing all that. And an honest reading of it was there were a lot of people who were trying very hard on the U.S. side to stabilize Afghanistan and make it a place that could fight for itself. It wasn't going to happen. It just wasn't going to happen. There, there was no plan beyond we're going to just keep trying. And I, then we spent another 10 years, blood and treasure, keep trying. But there was, no pla- there was no path to victory. There was no plan beyond that. It feels like, yeah, we're not in this war taking casualties, which obviously is very important. And, and I think that's why a lot of people don't even really think very much about what's going on in Ukraine. But we are spending $100 billion a year, and it is volatile, and they do have a lot of nukes over in Russia, and there are concerns here. Is the plan to just kind of keep going and see what happens? Because it doesn't feel like from the U.S. side there is a plan. No, I, I agree with you. As you were, you were saying this, what was popping in my head is I haven't seen a long-term plan from this administration. It's, they're, um, they're, they're playing it by ear right now. Oh, well, the Ukrainians say they need tanks. Well, let's figure out a way to get them tanks. They're saying they need air defense. Well, we'll get, I haven't seen someone sit down and say, here is a long-term plan to modernize or to maybe modernize isn't the right word, but to standardize the Ukrainian military to create a, a logistics system a system in order to get them what they need and keep it flowing in order to, to fight. I, we haven't seen that. It, it, um, and until we see that, I think we're going to be in this, uh, we're in a very reactive position. And that's fine to put out fires for today and tomorrow, but next week and next month and next year, um, that's, that's no way to fight a war. I mean, or no way to support a country that's fighting. And Bill, it feels like Russia-Ukraine is a war of attrition and one side has a whole lot more resources and uh, and will and commitment to this than the other in the sense that we're actually the logistics end of this, right? I mean, if, if the Western support for this collapses, if you're in a war of attrition, it's about who's willing, you know, you're taking losses on both sides, who's willing to keep refreshing those losses, both of, of men and materiel, right? The Russian side, it seems, much deeper bench, much more committed to this. On our side, it's, well, we're going to let them do the fighting and we'll keep providing the materiel. But it feels at some point like we're pouring a lot. And that could just be, I, I don't know what else to say. It, it could all be for naught, right? I mean, it feels like we're just trying to prop up the losing side and, and there's an inevitability to that. Well, I would say that, you know, what we are supplying to the Ukrainians has leveled the battlefield. It's, it's made things, you know, we can't, we, we do have to remember, Ukrainians had significant success in the fall driving the Russians out of two areas. Yeah, that's true. Right? Out of the, so that, that has, but what we've seen now is things are, I would say it's basically pretty even, but everything else you said, all things being said, it's a war of wills now. Um, we could keep provide, you know, since the Ukrainians don't have enough men, have as many men and as much stockpiles as the Russians have, the Russians can throw that. What we can do is keep providing weapons systems that levels the, the playing field. Um, but again, we're, you know, I think the weak link in this war isn't the Ukrainians' will to fight. If the weak link is the West's will, and I just, I keep going back to Iraq. I keep going back to Afghanistan, how we left Iraq in 2011 when, when we didn't need to, and you saw what happened within three years, the rise of the Islamic State I mean, or the, the leaving, from, leaving Afghanistan. These were, those weren't wars we lost on the battlefield or because we didn't have enough men or munitions. They're wars because we lost our will to fight. If the West loses its will to support the Ukrainians, if this war becomes too too costly for Western countries, then the Ukrainians, you know, they they at some point they they're they're bound to be on the losing side. What happens if the U.S. 
decides that we are going to, under the Biden administration, have a no-fly zone and also just start uh, start conducting airstrikes on Russian positions only inside of Ukraine, but we become we become the Ukrainian Air Force, so to speak. How do you think Putin responds to that? That that could lead to a situation where uh, tactical nuclear weapons are ex- are exchanged. Um, I do, you know, a, a direct Western involvement, U.S. troops or U.S. pilots flying over Ukraine. And I would argue you you cannot. This is, by the way, when this was talked about in the very beginning, I couldn't believe Air Force generals, guys who, you know, served in the country, served their nation for 30 years, were advocating this. Establishing a no-fly zone, you can't just do that in Ukraine. These aircraft are being launched from Russian bases. There's air defense systems that are across the border in Belarus and inside of, of Russia. Those would have to be targeted right. in order for... So you're for hitting Russian SAM sites, you're hitting Russian air bases. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not Russian sites inside of Ukraine. You'd have to do that um, in order to, um, to establish a legitimate no-fly zone. And once we do that, again, all bets are off. Um, that you want to have a... you want to you know, raise the, uh, you know, get that nuclear clock uh, to tick a couple of minutes closer to midnight, um, go ahead and start striking the Russians inside their own territory. What's the, before we close here, Bill, what's the optimistic case for how this goes? Realistic, but optimistic. You know, I could see a scenario here where the Russians, they're doing their call up and, but they're putting, um, inexperienced troops in the fight, and perhaps the U.S. Uh, I'm seeing some reports that the U.S. might provide some longer-range rocket systems. Those have been very effective on the battlefield. So, an optimistic uh, take on this from the Ukrainian side is that they get the weapon systems they need to hurt the Russians real bad to force them out of certain areas. I don't think they're going to be able to do it out of all of the areas, but um, that they could force, they could make the Russians really think hard about pressing their offensive. Bill Roggio, Foundation to Defense of Democracies, Long War Journal. This is Bill Runs, does great work and analysis on this. Go check it out. And Bill, I believe you do a podcast. That's right. We we have a podcast called Generation Jihad. That's where we uh, cover the you know issues of the what used to be called the global war on terror. Well, Bill, we got to have you back to talk uh, you know baseball and best grilling tips for the summer. But for this episode, <laughs> we wanted a deep dive in Ukraine. We got one. Thank you for your expertise and your time. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Bob. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels 
challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 